So we've been working through the book of Ephesians. Have you been following along at home, keeping score at home? I hope so. Those of you who are watching from home, we're, we're so grateful you are. We're sad you can't be with us. Many of you are just distanced out there. Some of you just can't make it because of a situation in your life. We love you. I love all of you too as well, even though I'm talking to them at home. But it's good to be together. It's good to come together. And we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, and we've come today to a pivot point. And that pivot point is that our reader, we made them read 16 verses. That's the pivot point. It's the longest reading. So Steve, thank you so much for doing that. But as I explained to him, it's one passage that needs to be, it begins with love, it ends with love, like so many things in our world, right? It begins with love, it ends with love, it belongs together. But we find a pivot point in the book. And the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this book, he writes it not only to the people in this ancient city of Ephesus, but to what we might know from the book of Revelation as the seven churches region. This was a circular letter. It was meant to be maybe delivered to the city of Ephesus, but then also to make its way up to Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea and the city of Colossae is really close to Laodicea. And so this letter was going to be circulated. And with this, that Paul, the apostle Paul, spends the first three chapters with this awesome description of God's salvation, of his God's grace and salvation. And that's the first three chapters that he's been writing. And um, he talks about in this, this plan of salvation, this plan that has been worked out since the foundations of the world, that salvation is by grace through faith, that simply turn towards God and entrust yourself to him. Trust him and entrust yourself to him. That's called faith, that you put your faith in God. And that this, this, uh, this posture of salvation, this, this is not just for the insiders. Salvation by grace through faith is not just for all those who grew up knowing the scriptures, who grew up with the promises of God. This is not just for those who are in or that are near. This is for those who are far off. As the apostle Paul says, those in this that are without hope and without God in the world, God is reaching towards them. Not just the insiders get this. This is to all. This is to the Gentiles, as he says. And that when this is embraced, when this truth is embraced, it forms a new community, kind of a weird community, an awkward community. We talked about like the DMV, right? That it's, it's people who have no other reason to be together. Jews and Gentiles, like they eat different they have different uh, expectations when it comes to family. They have different ways of raising kids. They have different ways of entering the world, different sensibilities. But when this gospel is preached and people put their faith in Jesus, they find themselves together in kind of a strange gathering of people. And this, this, line, this line in chapter 3, in, in 3.10, it says, Through the church the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities. And this idea that when this gospel is embraced and all of these weirdos gather together, no offense to you guys this morning, but when this is all gathering together and you look at them like, what does this person and this person have in common? Why are they even in the same place? That for some reason or another, this is an announcement to the forces of darkness in this world that Jesus is going to win. Like how awesome is that when you worship alongside someone that you have no business even knowing. 
that this is an announcement to the forces that would rather see you dead, that would rather see chaos reign, that Jesus is holding things together that no one else can hold together. Through the church, the manifold the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. And we today have this opportunity to announce to the forces of darkness that Jesus is winning. Jesus is going to win. Why? Because we have no business being together, right? And that as the church grows and as the church begins to look more like the DMV, and this is a challenge, right? As it looks more like that, and just because there's unity doesn't mean there's not tension, but as the church works through that tension, that it is an announcement that Jesus is winning, And that's what the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is about. And for the Apostle Paul, this is about about knowing. This is about understanding. And if you look at the first three chapters, the word like know, understand, comprehend, that Paul prays that the the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, right? We come today to a pivot point where he's no longer going to no talk about what I want you to do is know this. What I want you to do is understand this. What I want you to do is comprehend this. He's not going to talk that way anymore. What he's going to say is now I want you to walk. I don't want you to know. You already know. I spent three chapters. I mean, he didn't know he's writing three chapters when he wrote this, right? Those, the chapters and verses come later. But I just told you about what this is all about. I want you to have this deeply in your heart, deeply in your mind, deeply in your soul, but now I want you to walk, to walk in a manner worthy. And Paul is going to use this term, look at 4.1. If you have your Bible, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 4, 4.1. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Those first three chapters, that's the calling to which you have been called. And now, I want you to walk in a manner worthy. And this is a great, this is a great example. Even the whole book of Ephesians is just such a wonderful example of even the idea of the way the Apostle Paul, the way the early Jesus movement thought that transformation happens. That, uh, that Like the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, he says, therefore, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let your outward transformation take place as you renew your mind, that it's an inside-out transformation. We got to get this in your heads, in your heart, in your soul, that the Spirit would work inside of you and it would begin to work its way out. Now I want you to walk in a manner worthy, verse 2, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So before it was to know and to understand. And through the remainder of the book, Paul is going to urge them to live it out, to walk. And we're going to have more opportunity to reflect on this idea of walking because Paul will use the same verb walking. He'll use it four more times in the book. We'll have plenty of time to talk about what it means to walk and why does he use that verb to talk about how we live it out, that we walk in a manner worthy. But what we're going to do today, if if there is one command in this passage, it's 16 verses, right? It's a long passage, but there's only one command in it. And the one command is this, I urge you to walk. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy. And so what we're going to do today is we're just going to talk about what is the worthy manner in which Paul envisions his, the followers of Jesus, the people he's writing this to, what is the manner that is worthy of walking 
in view of the calling to which you have been called. Are you guys with me? You guys with me? All right. So there's two, there, there's, there's two major parts to this. We're going to come back to these three verses, but Paul is going to identify walking in the context of God's salvation and what that involves. And when God brings together people of different ethnicities, of different languages, of different cultures. In this day, when he's writing this, Jews and Gentiles, so uh, people who are people of God, people of Israel, people uh, that where he's writing this to people in southwestern Turkey, people in Greece, people in Rome. What happens when he brings all of these people together? That there are going to be insiders and outsiders. There's going to be some things that unite, and there are going to be some things that are differences. And this passage is really divided into two parts, that there are things that are meant to unite, and there are actually things that are meant to differentiate in the body. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about what are the things that unite, and what are the things that God actually intends to divide? What are the things that God intends to divide, and then why does he do it this way. So there's unity and diversity, and there's a why. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. I'm going to reflect on this a little bit. Well, the purpose of the unity and diversity in the church will offer some reflections, but the first part of this passage, if you look in 4.3, the first part is about unity. Let's start with unity. That's the happy part, right? We'll talk about division later. Division will come, but it's still a happy division. We'll find out. Um, but the first part of this passage is about unity. Look at 4.3 eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, if Ephesians was on Sesame Street, the rest of this passage would be brought to you by the number one. Okay? The number one. The number one, one is used over and over. It's used seven different times. There's seven terms that are used to talk about the oneness of what the church, what this gathering, the followers of Jesus, what has God done to unify? There are seven words that are modified by the number one, and let's read them. Four, four. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And this is significant as we understand the, the sort of unity that God has provided for his church. Each of these items are unique. They're, they're one. It's one of each. But they're also not just unique. They're foundational. That these are things that are necessary for the church to operate. And some commentators think that this is an a early Christian creed. That as you come into the church, you would say, well, there's, there's one body and there's one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now, whether or not, whether Paul makes this up or writes this in the moment, or whether this pre-exists his writing, this is a very interesting list of oneness. And presumably, this is the sort of thing that God has provided his church, the unity that he's provided his church, and that it needs to be kept by the church. 
So let's just, I'm going to walk through each of these things and we'll talk a little bit about what they are. I think as we do this, I think it's all, it, I think it's, it's helpful for us as we, even as we think about this passage, we think about this passage as unity and diversity, that God intends some sort of unity and we're going to reflect on what is that sort of unity that God intends. And God also intends some kind of diversity in the body, that actually God intends some kind of divisions within the body. And what are those things? And I think as we, as we think about that, I mean, even to imagine, like, how do I think right now about unity and diversity or unity and division within the body? And is there a place where, where how am I doing with unity? Like, am I, would I affirm these seven things? And how am I thinking about division? What, what's my role in that? And so as we kind of walk through this, I, I just want us to be thinking reflectively about what is our role as we sit in this room and as we're part of a larger body in the city of Orange and we're part of a larger body in the state of California and a larger body in the United States and a larger body than that, even as we think internationally, that those, we're just, where's one of many places that the body of Christ is gathering on this day, on this Palm Sunday, where around the world there are other people who are bowing their knee to Jesus as we bow our knee to Jesus. And so let's look at this idea of unity. What are these things? What are these things? So the first thing he says is there is one body. Now the thing about this is Paul has already mentioned all of these things, all seven of these things, with one except baptism he doesn't mention earlier, but all the rest he has already made some mention of in his chapters one through three as he's talking about this great salvation that has been provided and he now is going to use, he's going to kind of pick these things out and say, here's the oneness. So the first thing is this, that there is one body. Paul mentions this earlier in chapter two, verse 16. Now you don't have to turn back there, I'm going to read it, but he, he refers to the body. He says that, that God has reconciled, and actually that Jesus has reconciled us both, the Jews and the Gentiles. He has reconciled us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So there's one body by which we've been reconciled, but it also says this in 3.6, the mystery is that the Gentiles, I'm a Gentile, I did not grow up Jewish, I'm not Jewish ethnically, and so the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles, and, and I'm a good example that the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. And probably you are as well. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And here's the thing. Even as the Apostle Paul is writing this, and he's writing to the believers in Ephesus, and as this letter then gets maybe copied and then sent on up to Smyrna, that there's a gathering of believers in Smyrna. And there's a gathering of believers up in Pergamum. And there's a gathering of believers in Thyatira. And a gathering of believers in Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And there's multiple gatherings. And maybe even in some of these cities, there's multiple house churches. The Apostle Paul says there is one body. There's one body that even as Paul is writing to churches that are gathering in different locations, there is still only one body. Now, the thing is, each of those locations is representative of that body, but each of those locations is not the only body. 
The oneness is much larger than our mere gathering, though our gathering is representative of that body. We are emissaries of the body of Christ, but we are not the entirety of that body. Each location, uh, there's only, so here in Orange, there's many locations where followers of Jesus are gathering, and the pastors, uh, even this week, gathered together uh, to pray for our city. They actually met at the fire. Uh, I was out of town, but they met at the, um, at the police department, um, and they prayed for the, uh, for the police department, and we gathered, and we gather once a month, and so there's, a, and we call ourselves One Church of Orange, because there really is only one church in Orange, one body in Orange, and we are all part of that. We all bow our knee to Jesus, and so we want to make sure that it's clear that as we bow our knee to Jesus, that we are brothers and sisters, and that we are gathering as one church. And so once a month, we come together, we pray for our city. We pray for each other's congregations. We pray that every church in the city of Orange would be full. We root we, as Taft Avenue Community Church, we root for Bridge Church. We root for Beacon. We root for North, uh, uh, North Orange Church or for Villa Bible Church. We root for all of these churches in our city, for Grace Church of Orange. We root for all these churches to be full because we are on the same team. We are part of one body. And each location is representative of that body, which is why we root for every church in our city to be full of worshipers. We want every, we want every church to be like the DMV, right? We want every church full, demographically reflective of our community. That is our goal. And one day, one day, if it's not in heaven, we know in heaven, heaven will be like the DMV. Every tribe, tongue, nation, that's what our DMV is like, right? Every, every language possibly known to man, every socioeconomic category, every possible human being would be represented in heaven, and we will worship, and that will be the ultimate, the ultimate victory cry. Jesus has done it. He has recreated humanity and what divides humans is no longer significant. Jesus has brought them together. Ah, can we, I mean, come on, everybody. Like that, that's, that's the heart of God. That is why we're here. That's why, you, that's why somebody preached the gospel to you at some point. Because they had the heart of God that God somehow worked in their heart to say, that person who is far off needs to be near to God. And as we come in, you might have looked kind of weird coming in, but look, and now that you're in, there's other weird people coming in, right? And that's where we say, praise the Lord. Those who are far off need to come near, okay? So one body, I'm, I'm just one point into this sermon and I'm already off the notes, but that's okay, that's okay. Okay, so one body. He also says this, that there's one spirit. There's one spirit. Now, what does he mean by this? Now, obviously, there's, there's one Holy Spirit to this, but earlier in the book, in 2.18, he talked about through Jesus, we have access to the Father through one spirit. And I think when, when Paul is talking about there's one body, like even though you meet in a certain location, you're part of this one bigger body, but, and everywhere all over the planet, how are people getting access to God? How are they getting access to the Father? They are all accessing. The way we worship is being accessed. We're accessing through the Spirit. 
And every church in this city, every church in California, every church around the world is accessing God through one spirit. And it is a great unifying factor. God has provided that for us. There's one spirit. How do, how, in this day, how do the Jews have access to the Father? Through the Spirit. How do the Gentiles have access to the Father? Well, they do it through another way. No! They don't do it through another way. They do it through the same Spirit. So there's one body and there's one Spirit. It also says that there is one hope. One body, one spirit, one hope. All believers who gather in the name of Jesus today, all over the world, have one hope, and that is this. It's the hope of heaven. It's, and, and to put it another way, it's the hope that one day Jesus will return and make all things right. Man, do you, want, do you have that hope? Because look, I'm, I, we have people in our church that are suffering physically right now. We have people in our church that are suffering from past trauma in their lives. We have people in our church that are suffering from maybe economic issues. We have people that this world, this world is beating people down. And our hope is that Jesus will come and that he will make all things right. I don't know what your hope is. And maybe you're like... If your hope is like, one day I hope to pay off my mortgage, like, okay, that's great. But hope for more. Like, that might be the biggest thing in your life, or hey, one day I just hope that I'll find the right person, or one day I hope that my kids will follow, I mean, I think that's a good, but I hope that my kids get a job or something. Like, like those are great, or I hope that my, my knee heals, or I hope, those are great, those are good hopes. Like, that's awesome. And I, I would say, good for you. Hope for more. Hope for more. Broaden it out. There's other people who need way more and that God would make all things right. There's a fallenness over this world. It needs to be corrected. It's beating people up. There are anti-human and anti-God forces out there that are beating humanity down. Jesus, we need you. What is our hope? Our hope is that Jesus will return as a triumphant king and make all things right. One body, one spirit, one hope. You know what the Apostle Paul said about the Gentiles? It's like the Jews, you guys had the covenants and everything. You Gentiles, you were without hope and without God in the world. You were without hope and without God in the world. And that is why God said, Paul, I need you to get out there. I need you to give hope. There's one hope and then it goes on, the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. They have been brought in to the hope. So there's one body, there's one spirit, there's one hope. And I get, even as we think about this, how am I, are these the things that are on my mind? Like, as I think about the unity of the body, the unity of the church, how am I doing on these things? Are these the one things that are on my mind? He goes on to say that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Verse 5. He says one Lord. Now, we, uh, we, we, we tend to think of the word Lord like this is kind of Christianese, like Jesus is Lord. But in the, in the ancient world, when Paul is writing this, the word Lord was just the stock term for masters. And you, you, if you were, wherever you were at in kind of the social hierarchy, 
You had plenty of lords over your life. And a lord is someone who, if they said, you do this, their will would be done. They're your lord. They're your master. And if it wasn't someone in your family, it might have been someone in the government. It might have been the Caesar. Like, there were many lords. There were many people who wanted their will done. But Paul says, there is one Lord. There's only one Lord who you bow your knee to. Even though there are many lords. I mean, look, 2,000 years later, nothing has changed, has it? There's still plenty of people who want you to bow their knee to them, whether they're advertisers or businesses, vying for your attention. Think about this as lords are people who are vying for your attention, vying for your money, vying for your allegiance. Look, there are plenty of people who are vying for your allegiance. And if we don't come in regularly and say, all other allegiances be damned, I will bow my knee to Jesus and Jesus alone. If we don't do that regularly, we will be caught up in a world with many lords. And the Apostle Paul says, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord. It's always a good reminder. It's always a good reminder for me to say, look, am I bowing my knee to anyone else, to anything else? Is there anything else that is has my attention so significantly that I'm distracted. Again, back to this, am I, am I facing something else? And this is, again, the call that you're going to get sick of me saying. This, this is the call to turn, right? To turn and refocus, to reorient. That's faith. To reorient. It's repent and believe. Turn and trust. Turn and reorient. One Lord. It also says this, one faith. And this, this one faith, one faith, it refers back to this explanation in chapter 2 of, of the gospel, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This faith, what is our faith? Our faith is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we're caught in this web, this intricate web of the interlocking directorate of forces, the fallenness of this world, the devil and his demons, the sons of disobedience, my own flesh that drags me down, my own sins, I'm caught in this. But God looks at me and says, ah, oh, you're so ugly. You're so caught. No, he, God is rich in mercy. He doesn't look at us in our condition and go, oh my gosh, what a bunch of idiots. That's what I say. I'm not God, right? That's a, and maybe that's what, this is, I remind myself, I don't have the sensibilities of God. God says he looks at us in our, in our condition while we are weak, while we are sinners, even while we are his enemies. He says, this is just the right time for me to reach out to you. That's, that's our faith. Our faith is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God is rich in mercy and that he saves by grace through faith. And then with that, that there's good works that are prepared. That's our faith. If you want to know what our faith is, just read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. That's it. 
What is, what is our story? There's one story. It's one faith. And every, every person who bows their knee to Jesus, ha, that's the story. That's the gospel. One Lord, one faith. And even as we say this next one, one baptism, we all kind of snicker, right? There are so many disagreements in the church about baptism. When do you do it? Do you do it as babies? Do you do it as adults? Do people have to profess faith before you baptize them? Or can the faith of their parents be enough? And then when you do it, do you sprinkle, do you pour, or do you dunk? Right? And to even read like one baptism, it's almost laughable, isn't it, today? What have we, what have we become? Now, all, all this to say, there are, there are good reasons why people baptize the way they do. Paul is not necessarily talking about water baptism here. Although baptism, baptism is the initiatory rite into the church traditionally. That when you put your faith in Jesus, baptism means that you are baptized into the church. The apostle Paul doesn't really talk about baptism. What he does talk about is being in Christ. And the idea is that this baptism that he's talking about is not a baptism that's done by human hands as a symbol of your entrance into the kingdom, the baptism that is being done is what happens when you put your faith in Jesus, you get baptized by God through his spirit into Christ. One baptism, baptism into Christ. You get immersed into Jesus. And there's only one of those. And it's not done by your dad or your uncle or someone else that mentored you or whatever. It's done by God through his spirit in Christ. There's only one of those. And we might have, there's, we go, probably in, in the weeds on baptism and whether we dedicate or we baptize infants or how that works. And there, I, I suppose I should say this. In the unity and diversity categories, Baptism is in the unity category. <laughs> okay? Like, that's important for us to know because sometimes we, like, we got to divide over this. We got to divide over this thing. They don't do it like we do it. Baptism is not in the division category, baptism is in the unity category. And so maybe we need to think like, well, maybe the way we're doing it is not the way that the, if, whatever we do, we ought to, it ought to point to unity, right? I'm just thinking out loud up here. I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm not making this stuff up. It's here, right? So anyway, if it challenges us, then it means we're reading it the right way. Like, that's a good, that's a good way to think about the Bible. Like, if you read it and you're, you walk away, you're like, oh my gosh, I got to think about that. Like, you're probably reading it correctly because the Bible is meant to challenge us in, in certain places. Sometimes it's meant to comfort us. Sometimes it's meant to challenge us. And sometimes when we come to a passage like this and we have to say, gosh, maybe the way historically that we've divided over baptism has been wrong. Baptism is not in the diversity category in Ephesians 4. It's in the unity category. What have we done wrong? All right. Thank you. You're, I'm thinking out loud while, while I'm up here and I I hope it's not uncomfortable, but there is a point where tension is supposed to come, right? All right, let's, you're like, well, do something about it, Pastor. I'm like, okay, all right. All right, let's keep going. Okay, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and then it ends. Ultimately, there is one Father, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. I think this is important. Paul doesn't mention it 
particularly in this passage, but he does mention it earlier. You, 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 you've all been adopted by a father. Out of your family of origin, God has now, God the Father has now adopted you and me. And now, because he's adopted us, that he's both our father, what are we? We're children, but we're also brothers and sisters in a family. What the heck? Looking around this family, I thought it was just me and my brother. No. God has adopted us. The last thing he says, the ultimate unifying factor is how many fathers do you have? You have an earthly father, but you have one true father. That's Father God. He's adopted you into his family. And as you come into this family, you learn new sensibilities. You learn new, new ways of thinking. And you also learn that you're not the only person that has been adopted in this family. That you have brothers and sisters. Jesus is your greatest example of an elder brother. He's chosen to identify as a human being. You've been adopted. He's a true son of the Father. We're adopted sons and daughters. One body, one spirit. I'm losing track. One body, one spirit, one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. And those are the things that unify. These are the things that God has provided to unify every last man, woman, and child on the face of this earth who puts their faith in Jesus. Those seven things we have in common with people in the Ukraine, with people in China, with people in Russia that claim the name of Jesus, with people in Washington, D.C. that claim the name of Jesus, with people in Texas that claim the name of Jesus, wherever they're at. No laughs on Texas. I kind of thought that would be a good one to throw in there. Um, the most foreign land you could possibly think of. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Florida, that's another one, right? All over the world, whatever it is, what are the things that unify us? Those seven things unify every believer, everyone who bows their knee to Jesus. They are your brother. They are your sister. God has made a way for unity. God has made a way for unity. But God also says that if there's unity, there is not going to be a loss of individuality or personhood or even your own responsibility, that God has given you responsibility. And there is diversity and a difference between you and I and all the other brothers and sisters that are out there. There's a difference. And it's a real difference in the church. And the difference is this. The unity are those seven things. The differences are the ministries that you have. You are divided. The divisions, the diversity within the body is according to ministries. Now, for the Apostle Paul, what he, the term he uses for this is he uses the term grace to refer to ministry. In 4.7, he says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given. And other places that Paul will talk about, salvation is by grace through faith. This is not the grace 
of salvation. It's not like God gives, hey, you only get a little bit of salvation grace and you get a lot of salvation grace. I don't know why you guys get it and these guys don't. Okay, but that's not the way that, Paul, that's not the way that God is thinking. He's th- but he does talk about this idea of grace as ministries. Look back in 3.8. Paul will talk about this about his own ministry. In 3.8, he says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The, and in that place, what he's referring to is the grace that is given him was the ministry that he was called to. The ministry, his function within the body. And what God is saying and what, God, what Paul's talking about the way God is doing this is God has brought a great unity in the body, but there are different functions. Obviously, you could read like 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and talk about the differences of functionality and spiritual gifting and things like this. In this case, what he's talking about are various ministries that God is giving differently to different people in the body. Look at 411. It says he gave. It's also interesting, he doesn't give, he gives gifts but it doesn't imply that he gives these like special skills. It just says he gives people. Like I think this is really significant that God, we can think about God, well, he gave me this gift, this skill, this ability. And yeah, I think you come, I think you come with various skills and ability. They get baptized into Christ and you bring your skills and abilities. But the real gift that God gives the church is people. It's not that there's special skills and abilities. They're out there, obviously out there. But what he gives is he gives people. He says this, some are, he gives apostles. Apostles, the word apostle means a sent one. And this, the, the idea of, of, of being founding or authorized agents of God, um, some argue that this is the functionality of church planting apostles. One way or another, the idea is that, um, I, I think it, it would be a little bit, I think for anyone to claim today the name apostle seems a little bit anachronistic to me. So, but that's okay. We can, again, I, it's not part of like, we could probably disagree with that. We could agree to disagree about that because it's not under the unity category, right? This is under the diversity category. Some are given as apostles. Some are given the ministry of being a prophet. Now, sometimes prophets are, predict, are touted as kind of predictors of the future, but more often than not in the, in the scriptures, prophets are people who look at the current situation of the world and they interpret it through God's eyes. That prophets are ones who look at what's going on in this world and they interpret it with the idea that this would be the appropriate action at this particular moment because they've kind of read the cultural moment. That's what prophets do. When we read Ezekiel, Ezekiel didn't do a lot of predicting of the future. What he did is like, in this particular cultural moment, this is what you need to be doing. That's what prophets do. So, and we, we, we read that there are some that are from the Old Testament, but in the time of Paul, there are also prophets that are predicting, that are not are predicting the future, but they are talking about what's going on in this cultural moment. And I think also in our day and age that there are plenty of people today that look at our cultural moment and have maybe a better or worse idea about what we ought to be doing in light of what God's sensibilities are. Kind of modern day prophets. And there are people that I would look at as interpreters of culture today that I think that, that's a trustworthy voice from God's perspective of what's going on in this cultural moment. 
prophets. It also says that some are given the ministry of evangelists. The word evangelist, the word for good news is euangelia, a good message, euangelia, good message, right? The word, and that, we actually translate that as gospel. Good, the good news is the gospel. But if you make that into a verb, euangelia becomes euangelizo, that becomes the word evangelize, you good news eyes. And if you are a euangelist, you're a good newser. And probably what Paul is referring to here is if you are a good newser, an evangelist, you are someone who is trying because this has gone from a Jewish context now to a Greco-Roman context, and it's almost like talking a whole different language, and we have to kind of figure out how to, how to give this, the good news into a new place. And evangelists were probably people in art today, people who are imagining, how do these people need to hear the good news? It's not enough to just say the words. We have to communicate it to them. And I would say this, every generation has to find a new way to communicate the gospel to their particular spot in this cultural moment. The old language probably will not do it. Like if I, if I went out and I just preached the gospel in 17th century King James English, some people might understand what I'm saying. Some people might not. They might think it's kind of weird. But if I, like, if I tried to put this into the language that people would understand today, that's the work of an evangelist. Bringing the message into a contemporary setting. Evangelists also might not necessarily focus inside the church. Evangelists would focus on those who are far off. This is the diversity, right? There's unity, but there's also diversity. Some are apostles, some are prophets, some are evangelists, and some are given the ministry of pastor-teacher. And these two words go together. In, in Greek, it implies that these are pastor-teachers or uh, shepherds who teach or something like that. And now, these are not the only functions or skills within the church that are active in the church. The diversity of, of the bo- in the body is the function or skill that you bring to the body. You have, you have skills and abilities. And maybe you had them before you were a believer, and now that you be, you've become a believer, that the Holy Spirit says, hey, what if you took that skill and ability and you used it within the church? Great. Or maybe you found yourself, and as you've come into the church, you've come into faith, that certain things now, like certain things didn't look good to you before, but now you're like, man, I'm really attracted to this. I really want to do this. Like sometimes God renews your desires, and those are, he he creates new skills within you. But the diversity, there's a unity that goes on here. We all have one father, but we also all bring different skills and abilities. And you are a gift that Christ has given to the church. Let me say that again. Not your skill. You are a gift that Christ has given to the church. Maybe it's to the overall, the overarching body of Christ, or maybe it's to this particular group here. Whatever it is, you are a gift that Christ gave to the church. When he ascended, he led, he led captive captivity, and he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to the church, and he has given some as this, some as that, but he has given people 
to the body. You are a gift that has been given. Why has God given you as a gift to the church? I don't know. You probably do. Because there's certain things that make your heart beat, that make you want, that there's a ministry that God has put in your heart, deep in your bones, you know this is what God is calling me to. I don't know what it is, but I know that God has given you as a gift to the church. Why? Why has he done this? I mean, this is pretty cool. It's pretty, it's awesome, right? But why has he done this? Look at 412. He's done this. He's given you as a gift. He's given me as a gift. He's given apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers. He's given them why? Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why has he given you as a gift? You as a gift. Why has he given you as a gift? To equip other people for ministry. To build up the body. There's the unity in the church. One body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. But there's a diversity. There's a divisions within the church. And the divisions are the beautiful divisions of what you bring to the table in terms of ministry. Let me say something about, let me just go back back a little bit and say something about unity. Sometimes I think, and I've done this before, I think it's, 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 it's the church's job, it's my job to create unity, right? I don't want to show of hands, but maybe you've thought that before. Like, look, it's, it's, it's our, our job as the church, it's our job to create a sense of unity, that we need to celebrate that unity, we need to create that sense of unity. I think the interesting thing here is that in this passage, it never tells the church, you, the church needs to create unity. It says that God has already provided unity. And it's our job to preserve the unity. Look at 4.1. Back to 4.1. The punchline's in 4.3, but hang with me. Therefore, I as a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How? With all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Our job is not to create unity. God has done that. He sent His Son, one Lord, one Spirit, one body. God has provided this unity. Our job is to be eager to maintain that unity. It says the bond of peace. That it's uh, it's not that um, it, what, what's happened is when you experience salvation, you experience peace, and that that peace then 
bonds you to other people that have experienced that same salvation. And the church, the, what, is the, what is the worthy manner in which we walk? It's when we are diligent not to break the bond. Now, at certain times, this was not the way I went through seminary. The way I went through seminary is these are the way all churches believe which one's the right way and follow that and get rid of all the other ones. That is not eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I mean, that's about theological precision. And I like theological precision. I'm a trained theologian. I, 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 love, I love the intricacies. I love getting in the weeds. You can listen to the podcast. We can get in the weeds. But that is not eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I have to say, I have to confess, and I, I have friends that, that, that are at times in my life, I've not been eager. I've been more eager to be right. I've been more eager to point out someone's shortcomings, but I might not have been as eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond that happens when two people experience the same salvation but maybe disagree on a secondary or tertiary issue. Eager, eager to maintain the unity that God has provided. Lord, have mercy on us. I'm not joking. God, forgive us. when we're eager to divide based on doctrinal, secondary, third-level doctrinal, doctrinal issues, our posture in the world, we remove the tension of our unity in favor of uniformity, where we have bodies that have no tension in them, and it becomes group speak. We don't have a sharpening of each other. We find ourselves all raising our kids the same way, all voting the same way, all doing the same things, all following the same financial programs, all doing the exact same things, when there are other, there's a great diversity and we've not been eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of people who've experienced the same salvation we have. God have mercy on my soul. No longer, though, I am not walking that way. I will meet with the pastors. Whenever I'm in town, I will meet with the pastors. I will bend my knee with them, and we will pray for every church in the city of Orange. This is a deep, deep conviction of mine, that we would find ourselves in a place where we don't all vote the same way. I feel like we're in a cultural moment where every time the news comes on, it's like everybody needs to go to one side of the room or the other. How do you feel about masks? How do you feel about vaccinations? How do you feel about COVID? Is it a thing or is it not a thing? Like, go to your side of the room. What do you think? Is there racial issues in this? In the, like, go to your side of the room and then yell at each other. The one place, the one place where that should not happen is in the church. Because there is an eagerness, there's an eagerness 
to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of people who have experienced the same salvation. An eagerness. This is the thing that stands out to me. It's not just, hey, do your best. Paul just doesn't say, hey, do your best. I know it's going to be hard. He says, no, what I need are people who are eager to maintain this. Eager. And I just, I, I want to, I want to, it's got to start with me. Like, I've got to be the one, and I, I'm not just saying, it's got to start with you too. It's got to start with all. I'm not just saying it's got, it's not all on me. I mean, part of it's on me, but it, it's not all on me. It's on you too. But I'm saying it's got to start with the man in the mirror. You know what I'm saying. Michael Jackson, like, it's all, I'm talking about the man in the mirror, right? Right? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Thank you very much. You know where my head goes now, but um, the e- am I eager? Are you eager? I think for me, this, is, this has been uh, punctuated because my professional life has been in, in some institutions that are the evangelical right and in some institutions that are the evangelical left. I have some institutions that, I, that, I am, that I'm part of that every, it seems everybody votes Republican. And then I work in another institution where everybody votes Democrat. And I've walked in, in these two worlds, and there's, there's times where, like, people over on this side think that I'm the liberal, and people over here think that I'm the conservative. And I'm like, look, I, I don't know, like, all I'm trying to do is just follow Jesus and be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. During COVID, I read this before. This is a quote from uh, A.J. Swoboda on a podcast, and he says this. He says, we now live in an environment where I'm not permitted to find any political party that can say that the lives of the unborn matter as well as the lives of children at the border matter. There's no political party that will allow me to say that we should care for creation and we need to care for human beings and the economy. There's no political party that I know of that will simultaneously hold to sexual holiness and biblical views around sexuality and can also look gay and lesbian people in the face and can speak to them with dignity as people who should have rights, respect, and love. And it probably feels like I'm two different people and I can't be who I am because I live in a system that can't allow me to fully embrace God's kingdom. And I think to embrace God's kingdom is to care about the things that God seems to really care about in the Bible. And it will always offend the lines that we divide between what it means to be a conservative and to be a liberal. He goes on to say, I think that being a Christian now means that you are a politically homeless person, that you are politically exiled. Most people feel exiled who are trying to follow Jesus right now. Those are the words of a man who is eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And the reason I know he's eager is because there's tension. I know you will be eager if you feel that tension. We were driving down the road and... um, Across the street, across traffic, comes this guy. He's got a man bun. Strike one. (laughs) 
and he's walking his dog, but his dog is not on a leash, right? Strike two. And he's crossing traffic, strike three, okay. And he's crossing the, the man bun dog walking guy goes across the street, and, I'm, and you know, dad's mad. I'm just an angry person anyway, so that's just my, my way. And so I'm just like, and uh, Kelly says, you know, it's, just, it's, it's like you're saying at church, like the DMV, right? Like that guy, that guy would be at the DMV. And it was just this reminder, like, that guy needs to be at our church. The man bun walking the dog guy. The guy that I don't like. Right? And it's like, yeah, come back to haunt you, big guy. You preach it. You got, you know. But here's the thing. You feel that tension. You feel that tension. You know that the Spirit is at work. You feel that tension. You know the Spirit is at work because the Spirit is here to make you into something you are not already. If your prayer is to be like Jesus, I got news for you. God needs to make you into something that you are not already. And if you're going to be made into something you are not already, there's going to be tension. You're going to be simultaneously mad at the man bun guy and want to give him the gospel. That was the best example I could think, guys. Right? Tension. I, I don't want a church that doesn't have tension. I want a church that's eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's going to be plenty of tension. But we believe that what unites us is stronger than what divides us. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you today. Um, I mean, Ephesians is killing us, Father. It's, it's really doing its work on us. It's doing its work on me. It feels like it gets harder and harder every week. But Father, you are doing something in our midst. You are making us, you are making us alive together with Christ. And as we are being made alive together with Christ, we are being changed. And we find ourselves experiencing the same salvation as people that we, we wouldn't otherwise know. And so, we, Father, we just we pray, do your work in us. Be gentle, but push us. We need your Spirit in our lives. We need your Spirit to guide us. We need the example of Jesus to move us. We need your love, Father, to hold us steady when we feel a tension that is ripping us apart. We pray, Father, through your Spirit, give us the eagerness to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We love you, Father. We look forward next week to celebrating your bringing Jesus out of the dead, raising him. Jesus, we thank you for the work you've done. Spirit, we thank you that you are with us today. We recognize your presence in this room. Be honored as we lift our voices now. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.